We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Let's turn our Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 through 27. Matthew 17. Uh, Let me make sure that I have my verses right here. And yes, we do. We have two portions of Scripture. I've decided to take them together as uh, the Lord permits us to have time this evening. And um, I've titled the message, Another Gloomy Prediction and Taxes. And no, the gloomy prediction is not about taxes. (laughs) They're two separate things. Uh, Let me uh, share with you what that is. Verse 22, Matthew 17. Now, while they were staying in Galilee... Or when they were gathered in Galilee, your translation might have, there's a slight difference in the verb there, just a couple letters up front at the front of the verb and the prefix that are different, so it makes that difference in meaning. So either when they had come, um, sorry, when they uh, they were staying in Galilee or had gathered there, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, From strangers. Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea Cast in a hook and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened his mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. The message here is not a gloomy prediction about taxes, but it is about death and taxes. Not the death that you talk about when you talk about you know the two inevitable things in life, death and taxes, but uh, we have two different subsections here, and the Lord is going to, he predicts, prophesies, die by the hands of sinners, but nonetheless, he advocated paying taxes in order to avoid unnecessary offense to those who were asking about the taxes. Now, this is kind of just, as I'm thinking about it now, putting the kind of exegetical details aside, if that is an accurate representation of what the text says, you think about that. Here's Jesus who is about to be killed, and he's so sensitive to those who are outside of him that he's advocating doing this with the taxes so as to avoid unnecessary problems. That's how much he is concerned for them while they are not at all concerned for him. What an, what an asymmetry in the love and compassion of the two uh, toward each other. So verses uh, 22 and 23, Jesus prophesies his death, 
my Bible says he predicts his death. I rather like to use the word prophesy because prediction may sound a little bit weak, um, you know, like predicting the weather, which is obviously a very inexact science. This is not a prediction. This is a prophecy. Uh, and they were in Galilee together, perhaps staying there in Galilee, living together, uh, staying there for a short time. And uh, the Lord had been speaking to the disciples about his death and resurrection several times now. And for this version of this, I'm not going to go through and talk about his, his you know, suffering and his, his death and the three days in the, in the raised up and all of that sort of stuff in terms of their, the details of those events. We're very familiar with those, and I'm preaching to the choir, but I know that we're going to have plenty of opportunities to come back to this theme. And the reason I know that is because listen to all of these places where the Lord had talked about with the disciples something to do with his death, betrayal, resurrection, and, and suffering. In Matthew 16, 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. So that's Matthew 16, 21. And by the way, these notes are available on the website like uh, the others are as well, fbcaa.org slash docs, D-O-C-S, that is spelled. And you can get these there or jot them down if you want. In Matthew 17, 9, the text of the Bible says, tell the vision, this was the uh, transfiguration, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. So in Matthew 16, he begins to introduce them to this notion that he's going to die. And you remember how Peter responded to that, right? Well, just before that, Peter had said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And wow, Peter, that's great. Heaven's revealed this to you. On this rock, I will build my church. And then he says, but I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, wait a minute. That's not going to happen to you, Lord. Don't be ridiculous. Don't be silly. You must be wrong. Something's not right in your thinking. And so they began with uh, this in chapter 16, but now the Lord is going to continue to repeat it to them over and over again. Uh, by the way, anybody who, like uh, some of our acquaintances have done to us, said that Jesus didn't have to die, well, he sure would have liked to have known that. <laughs> I mean, he says so many times it's necessary that the Christ suffer and then enter into his glory. It's necessary that he die. He must die. If he doesn't die, you're going to die. If he doesn't die, your sins aren't going to be forgiven. We know that theologically, but it was predicted. It had to be fulfilled. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He, wrote, he was buried. He rose again according to the scriptures, you know. All of that, very necessary. And then you have also in uh, Matthew 17, 12, likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Matthew 17, uh, 22 and 23, where we are now, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up. Now put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Your teacher, your uh, leader, is telling you this over and over. How many times have we, how many verses have we gone? Somebody keep track for us here. That's the fourth segment. Here's another one, Matthew 20, verse 18. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify. And of course, the understanding is there's going to be killed. And the third day he will rise again. 
Here's another one, Matthew 20, 22 to 23. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Remember when uh, John and James, their mother came and asked, you know, right hand and left hand in your kingdom. And Jesus said, now just, you know, (laughs) time out. Think about what you've just asked. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. So I know that that, phrase, or that section of verses didn't use the word suffer or rise again or killed or whatever, but you know what he means, baptized with this kind of baptism. Matthew 21, 38 is a parable. In it, the Lord said, when the vine dressers saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize on his inheritance. Remember that, the, the uh, vine dressers working in the vineyard? They stole the vineyard from the master, basically. They beat all of his servants that came to take a, of the profit of the place. And um, so they saw the son who the father had sent and said, well, surely, surely they will respect my son, but they didn't. Matthew 26, 2, you know that after two days is the Passover and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. Matthew 26, 21 and 23 and 24. Now, as they were eating... He said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Remember the disciples, this is at the Last Supper, kind of looking at each other. Who is he talking about? Is it I, Lord? Is it me? And it says, He who who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Here's another one, Matthew 26. Then Jesus said to them, this is 31 and 32, All of you will be made to stumble this night because of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you into Galilee. And then finally, in Matthew 27. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation... Now, this is a little bit of a different one, but you'll get the gist of it. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise again. So even the Pharisees knew all the verses that I just read to you. Did somebody have the count? How many was it? Nobody kept track. I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight... 11. 11 verses that say that, the same thing. The repetition is undoubtedly meant to fix in their minds the truth of this, but also what? To help them mentally prepare for it. In other words, something bad is about to happen. We're going to prepare you for it. You know, you do that when you have you know, something that's about to be very difficult in your life and you roll it over in your minds and you're thinking about it. You know, you have some medical procedure. Heidi's been thinking about cancer treatment and what's chemo going to do to me and all this, and she's thinking about this, and she's prepared for it, although it's not fully upon her yet, so it's still going to be difficult. It's going to be a shock to them when it happens. And you, you look at the you can almost see the faces of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus as they walk and are sad. 
The Lord came up to them and saw their faces were like dragging on the ground. They were so, it was the worst, you know. It was the 9-11 of their lives, only worse than that. And so it was terrible. The repetition also serves to strengthen their future ministry and ours. The repetition of this truth so that we can get to know the events around our Lord's death and resurrection, they not only happened to occur, they were prophesied to occur and they had to occur, they were ordained to occur, and the scripture had to be fulfilled for our redemption to be accomplished. And so, you know, it's one thing for a person to die. It's a totally a different thing if somebody predicts that they're going to die, the manner in which they're going to die, and how long they're going to be in the grave, and then when they come out of the grave. That's a totally different ball game. Now, it doesn't take us much empathy to understand the feelings of the disciples at this point, does it? Peter had expressed a denial of this awful situation back in chapter 16. Not so, Lord. It's not going to be for you. They could not conceive of this event happening to the perfect person they knew the Son of Man to be. Who would kill a perfect person? Well, we do it all the time in our society. We'll kill innocent people every single day by the thousands. After a couple of more mentions of this, I'm going to die, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to you know, be killed, I'll go to be buried, I'll be in the grave, I'll come out, I'll be risen, I'll rise again from the dead. So he mentions it, and maybe more of these are recorded. Maybe the disciples started to soften up to the reality that, well, this is really going to happen. We won't know this side of heaven, maybe never, or ever will we know if the Lord spoke to them about it more than the times I've recorded here, uh, are, are registered, that are recorded for us. I suspect it was not too many more times that he spoke of this because that was such a significant thing, I expect the apostles would have written it down. Like this is big time news. And so every time that he said it, I wonder if they wrote it down. Maybe not every time, but... And I only went through Matthew's gospel. I admit I didn't go through Mark, Luke, and John to find all the parallel passages. I just went through Matthew, did that on purpose, so we'd stay right in the chronology of this book. But be that as it may, now at least they were not denying the reality of what was about to occur, but what does it say was their response? It wasn't an indignant response. It says at the end of verse 23, do you see that? They were exceedingly sorrowful. The, what we call the stages of grief were already unfolding. Denial first, right? This cannot be happening. And then after that, it's extreme sorrow. I'm skipping over you know, all the psychology of it that people study these days, but that's not really my interest. Our biblical interest here is just to follow the text, and we see that. They were, they were already unfolding into this situation. By the way, about grief, it is real, it is expected, and you have to turn it with faith into a Godward, hope-filled, active kind of grief. Not a self-isolation. I'm talking to you if you have grief. If you have, you have grief, long-term grief, short-term grief, new griefs, old griefs, we all have had them. 
you turn it into a Godward, hope-filled, active kind of grief instead of a self-isolationist, depressing kind of thing. Notice the direction of those two kinds of grief. One is ever going downward, and the other is ever going upward. So important. Check yourself if you have some grief that you are looking and moving in the right direction, not in the wrong direction down here. Okay? Grief. Sorrow. The disciples were legitimate to to sorrow. The Lord said uh, the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. But when the bridegroom comes back to them, they will have rejoicing. There's no call for us to be sad and sorrowing now. We know the Lord's risen from the dead, and uh, we're grateful for that. All right. So after that, it says they came to Capernaum. So our location now is, is still in the general Galilee region. They made their way back to a village called Capernaum, where the Lord had stayed regularly and uh, on the north side and somewhat on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. I call it the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, but seas don't have corners, you know what I mean. It's not a a box-shaped sea. Um, And although I've noted the location here of Capernaum, and I talked a moment about Galilee where they were staying or had met, I'm not Uh, convinced that there's any major significance of those particular locations for our understanding and for the lessons that are being taught here. So we're just noting them because the text notes them. The Lord could have spoken these illustrations anywhere or these teachings anywhere, and they would mean the same thing, right? Now, the temple financial authorities came to Peter and asked him if his uh, teacher pays the temple tax. They didn't see Peter or Jesus as anyone special, so they had to pay up just like everybody else, and so they were coming, calling for the temple tax. The tax was instituted in Exodus chapter 30. In Exodus chapter 30 and verse number 11, the Bible says this. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord, when you number them, that you may, uh, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 geras. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. When you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves, and you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Okay, I think I read the whole section there. Yes, that's up to verse 16. So that's where the tax came from, and it was for the sanctuary at the time. The uh, temple had not yet been completely built, Uh, Remember, Exodus is about that. They received the pattern, they built it, they inaugurate it by the end of the book of Exodus, but uh, it's in process now, and the ark has been put together, and some of it's coming together here. Uh, But it was being stood up for its religious functions in the nation, so everybody had to pay a half of a shekel. 
There was no inflationary monetary policy in that system of economics. The shekel was about a fifth of an ounce of silver. Okay, one fifth of an ounce. So you remember, you know, your one ounce silver uh, maple leaf or silver, what do they call them in uh, silver American Eagle, is it, uh, in, in the U.S.? So you picture that, chop it in five pieces, one of those. So what's an, an ounce of silver today? 25 bucks or something like that. So it's a small tax. I mean, it doesn't seem onerous. Uh, in Second Chronicles, You know, I suppose that people complained about this tax because people complain about every tax, right? <laughs> right? Second uh, Chronicles twenty four nine, and maybe they let it, uh, you know, let it kind of fall off uh, out of practice. But uh, under Joash, who's repairing the temple, he's a young man when he became king, young boy, and they made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to bring to the Lord the collection that Moses, the servant of God, had imposed on Israel in the wilderness. So if you have, you know, tens of thousands of people, five bucks adds up, right? You know, and you're getting to do something useful with that. But it's not an onerous kind of situation. So that's what the tax was. It was a tax of silver, a shekel uh, money. So Peter answered the inquiry. He said, yes, indeed, Jesus does pay the tax in verse 25. And the Lord, already knowing that all this had happened, here's another evidence of Jesus' omniscience. He knew everything. Uh, anticipates Peter when he comes into the building where they were, into the house, and, and asks him what he thinks about taxes. And Peter is like, huh, funny you should ask. I was just talking about taxes with somebody. And um, so <clears throat> he asks a question about uh, who, who, is the, who are the proper people to pay taxes. Now, in our system... Even the president pays taxes, and I think that's a good thing. Nobody should be above the law. Um, and, of course, that becomes a big you know, source of contention if somebody wants to release their tax forms or not. Um, but there should be a one law for all people, uh, hopefully. Today there is, sort of. Um, I'll leave that to your imagination. But that traditionally was not the case when there was a unitary head of government. When you had a king who was the legislator, the executive, and the judiciary all in one person or had all of those functions underneath him. You know, obviously in a big country, they'd be branched out into different sub-departments, sub, uh, if you will. But ultimately, he was the guy in charge of all the branches of government. There would be special cutouts for that person, and everybody understood that that had to be. I mean, the, the king, when taxes were paid, they were paid to the king. So if the king was paying taxes, they'd just be paying taxes to himself. So it doesn't really make sense for that. And he wouldn't charge his uh, offspring taxes. Uh, certainly one of the offspring was going to be the next king. So that didn't make sense. So <clears throat> the kings and their, and their families did not have to pay the taxes. They were supported by the taxes. Peter understood that concept. And so he knew that the, the Lord, as the Son of God, remember he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So he knew that Christ, as the Son of God, would not be liable for any taxes to support God's work. I mean, the tax to support the temple, well, Jesus was the temple. He was the real temple. Um, he was God, as we now understand from the fullness of divine revelation, but as one so closely related to him at the time is how they understood him as the Son 
no taxes would be due. So at least as much as Peter knew, even if he didn't understand the deity of Christ fully, he understood the sonship of Christ and that he would not be doing uh, be, be due to pay a tax. But even so, the Lord told Peter that they should not offend the tax collectors. It would be fruitless anyway because the tax collectors would not understand Jesus being the Son of God. So the principle was that Jesus would not cause a stir about it and just follow the normal custom as if he were anyone else. So he hereby teaches us to avoid stirring up trouble, doing things to just prove our point or prove someone else wrong or stir up trouble because we like being contrary. You know, uh, imagine somebody saying, I am not going to pay my taxes because the government uses the money for sinful things. You think that wasn't the case in Rome? Think that wasn't the case in Rome? And Paul told the people, pay taxes to whom taxes are due, tribute to whom tribute, honor to whom honor. It's just the way that, of course, the money is used for sinful things because there are sinners in charge of it. But that doesn't excuse us from having to pay our taxes. There, there have been people who have said, well, I'm not paying those taxes. I'm not obeying those laws. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that because I know better. Uh, you know, you knew you were right. You tried to prove the point, but you offended the law. And you're like that. Now you're sitting in jail for tax evasion. Don't be dumb. Um, you know, don't, don't take a stand on that sort of thing. Um, you know, perhaps you have to always have the last word to prove your point. Does that characteristic exhibit love for others or, or for yourself? You know, you, I am not going to pay those taxes. I'm right. They're wrong. Okay. But you're going to have a problem because of that. And you're not exhibiting love for others and, uh, and, and how can I say, submission to authority. So Jesus made a miraculous provision for the tax, so it was certainly not a financial difficulty for them. He would uh, have uh, found, Peter would have, a shekel-sized coin in this fish. Um, where did the coin come from? You know, you say, well, somebody lost it, so it was theirs. Well, how, wherever it came from, I'm sure it was not ill-gotten by the fish, nor was it ill-gotten by Peter. Uh, so I don't, I don't let that question concern me, you know, uh, could, could Christ have made the, the coin out of thin air? Well, certainly he could have. I tend to doubt that he did. I mean, I think the fish maybe just swallowed up a coin that somebody dropped in, you know, to the wishing uh, well or whatever it's called. And, and uh, maybe that's not the right term for it. But anyway, you get the point. Somebody dropping in the, in the coin to the fountain. Um, well, the message here was about two things, death and taxes. Christ's death and taxes, which really serve to, to teach Peter this other principle that we're not going to fuss about that. We're just going to pay the tax and, and just forget about it. The Lord's death was inevitable because it was planned before the foundation of the world, and, and we do pay our taxes if for no other reason than just to be normal and not to cause trouble or, as some have done, bring shame on the name of Christ by, by saying silly and doctrinally false things uh, about it. Yeah, I wish that I could, uh, you know, check a few boxes on my tax return and say this money is not allowed to be used for abortion and this and that and a few other things, but we'll get our opportunity to rule and reign with Christ, and then we can do it the right way when he calls us to do that.
Okay, so hang in there until then. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the privilege to be together tonight and to study the Word of God, uh, thinking about uh, the, the, the kind of attitude that Peter is being taught by the Lord of deference or uh, just not getting too uh, excited about the tax question, or I think the principle applies in other things as well, that we should just uh, take it easy, relax, that we should not um, try to do things that will cause unnecessary offense to others. And uh, Lord, we just uh, call out you to you to help us with that tonight and help us to also be reassured by the multitude of texts in which the Lord told the disciples that he was going to be killed, suffer, die, rise again from the dead, uh, be betrayed um, by, by uh, one to the authorities and handed over to the Romans. And this does bolster our faith that all this happened just as the Lord said it would. Thank you for this. And thank you for his death on our behalf and for his teaching that teaches us how to interact with this real world in which we live. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, sure, that's fine. Oh, is that so? Okay, well, I've been asked to pray for Darius because uh, last prayer meeting for him here with us, so let's do that. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for our sister's suggestion and uh, to be able to spend a moment, not, not to embarrass our brother, but to just pray for him and to recognize that uh, you have given him the gift of life and you've given him to us as a gift and how thankful we are for that. Uh, Father, we pray that you would bless him on his way like we prayed for another Marine uh, attached to our church family remotely uh, by extension. We pray for this young man who wants to enter into the service of uh, the country and then to move on from there to whatever you call him to do. We pray that you would watch over him, keep him safe, provide his every need. Lord, provide him in the future with a family that would be able to honor you and everything that they do. Provide him, Lord, with strength, with um, uh, the ability to use the uh, education that he has received to better himself, his country, his world, and uh, the church especially that he finds himself in. Lord, it might be hard for him to find a church fellowship in the years to come, uh, whether that's because of movement, um, uh, work that he's doing, uh, lack of uh, a church in the location where he is, or things like that. I pray that you would help him to make the best of those circumstances, however that might be necessary. And then when he's able to be in a place where there's a good assembly, good chaplains, other good Christians where they can have study of Scripture, I pray that you would flourish him there as well. Watch over him, we pray. May your love shine upon him. May your grace be his portion. May your mercy surround him. May you uphold him with your right hand. And may the power of the resurrection of Christ be evident in his life. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes, amen. All right, good night, everybody. We are going to be finished for tonight, and I trust that God will bless you and keep you. Amen. Good night.